Well, what do witches, Brandon, <laughs> and uh, the Supreme Court have in common? Well, they're all part of the headlines these days. And uh, so we're going to be breaking that down on this week's uh, Around the Blackboard, part of Theology on Air. As you probably know, Theology on Air is a part of Theology on Tap, a every other month get-together around craft beer, theological conversation. Check out Houston TOT if you live in the Houston area, or even if you live like in Ohio and you want to fly to Houston for a Theology on Tap event. Right, sir? Yeah, no, it's a total great use of your to- funds. Totally mm-hmm. worth, worth that. You can expense yeah. it. You know, put it in your... Use those credit card points, man. Absolutely. Anyway, but HoustonTOT.com to learn about future events, where they are, what they'll be about, um, and we definitely want to encourage you to do that. This is our weekly podcast, and where we talk about, you know, theology, social, moral, political issues, all of the above, and uh, we look at headlines on our Around the Blackboard episode, so named because there is a real 20-slate blackboard behind us, and it was the only room available in the church, so <laughs> we just decided to embrace it, you know? Yeah. I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor here at First Lutheran in Midtown Houston. I'm joined, usually as always, by Sarah Stone, Hello. Outreach Coordinator at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, and Patrick Hall. Howdy, y'all. Rector, yes? Rector. 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 At... Um, uh, the Church of the Epiphany. That's it. Not yeah. Epiphany Episcopal Church, but the Church of uh, the Epiphany. Yeah, Episcopal. I just say Epiphany Church. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, as long as Epiphany and Church are in the phrase, you're you're good. On the southwest side of Houston, and their website is Epiphany-hou.org. Cool. By the way, go Astros. Go Astros. We have not said a word about the Astros. I know, we've been, and we've I got been doing show prep for thirty I, minutes. I got on. tickets tomorrow, man. I'm, yeah. Oh, you're nice. So fancy. Yeah, we're gonna be at Game Six. Okay, how does that work? I was watching the game last <laughs> night. Episcopals are wealthy. Is, no. <laughs> no, no. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Bam. Um, and uh, anyway, so they're like coming back. They're winning. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, they, if, if the Braves win, the series is over. Yeah. So, But if the Astros lose, they come back to Houston to play. Right. So when do you buy your tickets? Okay, so the way it works is the tickets go on sale. Um, the tic- So we bought our tickets halfway through the championship series. Oh, okay. And so what happens is you buy the tickets, and you can either do it on the ML. We did it through StubHub. And they they basically uh, charge you for your tickets, but then if it's a contingent game, meaning that it's not guaranteed to happen, and if it doesn't happen, they refund you the cost of the ticket plus twenty percent for like taxes and fees okay. and for your sadness, right? Yeah. For your for your sadness. No, there, there are some circumstances where I would have been happy if the game didn't happen because we would have like swept, but oh, true, right. but yes. that didn't happen. So my my prediction of Astros in five has gone off the rails. So it is, seven. yeah. I'm yeah. just gonna be happy if we win in seven at this point. Go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well let's. We got so much to talk about, so let's jump in. Yeah. Um, Sarah, why don't you get us started? You had a... uh, Yeah, this is before we actually get to the articles. I just Mm -hmm. was thinking on the way over, there's been so much buzz about this Let's Go Brandon phrase that's flying around everywhere. Uh, I think most people probably know, but the original story was a NASCAR race where the crowd was yelling F word, Joe Biden, um, while a reporter was interviewing a driver named Brandon. Which, by the way, was happening at football stadiums. And yeah. So it's sort of happening for, for Not, many There are many that. people who don't like Joe Biden. Can I just say that I like the way you bracketed F word? Like it was like F word. You know, trying like, to decide if I wanted to like spell like, it. Or I, I want to honor that this word honor. was used, but I also want to honor my... My regret that such a word would be used. Yes. That is yeah. well done. There's a nice yeah. cornucopia of, of judgment you. and clarity all at, all at once. <laughs> That's true, as is the Bible. 
Absolutely. Okay, great. So that's what they were saying. And then the reporter in a sort of let's make this nice and tie it up with a bow said, oh, listen, they're all saying let's go Brandon, which has now become sort of a meme in every sense. And people are having T-shirts printed that say let's go Brandon, which really means F Joe mm-hmm. Biden. Uh, and, and the reason I thought it'd be interesting to talk about just for a second isn't because I want to take a stance on how I feel about Joe Biden, um, though I would never chant that, uh, is this idea that the office of presidency – I feel like whatever respect it once had has sort of slowly gone down the drain. And I have a feeling the sort of intrusive way that we look into that office and talk about the president, I think that may have started maybe in like the Clinton. I mean, obviously, there's been a slow uh, journey into, I mean, we use our free speech Mm -hmm. and sometimes we use it for ugly purposes. Mm -hmm. But there's something that happened with Clinton and the whole sex scandal that I think opened up this idea that like we could sort of peer into the bedroom of and the inner workings of Mm -hmm. the presidency. I remember my mom um, being kind of horrified because she watched an interview someone was doing Barack Obama and they asked him if he wore boxers or briefs. It was uh, Prince, uh, it was uh, Harry, Prince Harry. Oh, Hmm. interesting. Which is even weirder. But what? If anybody should know not to ask that question, it would be a royal. Exactly. Okay. Prince Harry was interviewing. Prince Barack Harry Obama. was interviewing Barack Obama, and okay. he asked him boxes or briefs, and Obama was like, "That's I'm not." And now they that. both make hundreds of millions of dollars through Netflix. Okay, there you go. But, but we wouldn't have even asked that question no. decades ago, right? There was some sort of respect, even if you didn't like the policies of the president. So here's a, here's yeah. here's what I think is going on with that. I feel very passionately about this, which is why I interrupted you, for which I apologize. Sort I'm of. I'm okay with it. But um, what has fallen apart is not just our respect for the presidency, but it's the boundary between public and private. Oh, you do feel so I do, yeah. So yeah. we used to live in a society that was Christian enough to assume that what happened in people's private lives was probably ugly. Oh, wow. And we, we really just, what we cared about, if they were public figures, was that they did their job. Right. And if they did their job, then like, you know, whatever they did in private was the... Right. Be freaky on your yeah, own. Yeah, well, I mean, it was like, you know, if you're not married to the guy or, you know, yeah. I mean, who cares, Right. Uh, and so what has happened really starting in the 19th century, but really accelerated in the 20th, uh, is the feathering away of that public private boundary. And so people now, rather than being obsessed about whether someone can do their job, we're obsessed with their personality. And so once, once political office is a matter of personality, suddenly you either like someone's personality or you hate their personality. And it's a way of focusing on something (laughs) other than like, well, did this person actually do anything? Right. Like, are they qualified for this job? Right. Are they actually good at the job? That's not what we care about. We mm. care about, do I like their personality or not? Yeah. Which I think is actually just destabilizing all of our institutions. We actually agree about that, 100%. Yeah. I didn't like the personality of either of the people running last time for office. Yeah. But I voted for policy, and I won't get into who I voted for. But, uh, yeah. Well, and I think that all, all leaders are uh, in a precarious situation more than before. I think that, you know, I mean— the respect for pastors has oh my god dramatically, yeah. um, you know. Uh, you know, I, I kind of joke. People say, "What? What do you want to be called?" You know, pastor. You know, you know that we're all Pastor Evan now, right? I would like to be called Your Grace. I I can't tell you how much I hate that. Yeah. Like to me, Father Patrick. I feel like I should be like in Birkenstocks at a Catholic right, summer sure. camp playing for Kumbaya. Sure. Would you say? Do you, do I you hate go, that do so you go much. Visit your doctor, and you're like, "Hey, Doctor Rob, <laughs> isn't it Doctor Williams? Right? <laughs> isn't it?" So I'm like, "Call me Evan, right. or call me Pastor McClanahan. Yes. But don't call me Pastor Evan for the sake of the office." Yeah, you know. So I do think that mm. that there is a lessening of uh, of of that. But I'll say this to to go on the offensive a little bit on this. 
there's a couple things that that phrase captures, and yeah. it's the it's the media stupidity and aloofness and understanding human beings in mm-hmm. America at this moment. Um, she knew what they were saying. What? Everyone knew what they were saying, and she stupidly said, to oh, well, they're actually saying, let's go, yeah. Brandon, which is just so stupid and, and, and unbelievable that she is being mocked for it as she deserves to be mocked. And the other oh. thing I would say is that um, I think that to a degree, we stopped respecting var- a variety of leadership positions when they stopped respecting us. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that may be wrong. I don't know. But I do think that, that generally speaking, I mean, people trace this back to like Vietnam and like the kind of movement against, you know, the war and like real skepticism about what was going on there and like the decline of respect for institutions and all those sorts of things. Um, I think people basically felt like, well, if you're not going to respect me, you know, the lives of my children, or if you're not going to be a trustworthy, you know, bearer of my, of my trust, you know, then we won't respect you either. Yeah. And so I think that there is... And this goes all. This certainly goes back to well before 2015. But what someone like Donald Trump, for all of his <laughs> negatives, what he tapped into was this um, unspoken frustration that yeah. ordinary people feel that there are these power centers in America that do not care about them at all. And Donald Trump came along and said, "I care about you." And there were people who were so grateful that they would do that they that they did what they did. Yeah. And I think that movement only began in 2015. It's a lot more powerful today than it was then. We're seeing that, I think, in Virginia. I think we'll see that tomorrow um, and, and, and in future elections. So, And it's not just about politics. It's, yeah. a, it's about this division in our country, which is very real and very pronounced among average people who feel totally unrepresented and totally disconnected by, the, by their betters, by the, by the elites of society. Um, there was a book I mentioned at the last Theology on Tap, and mm-hmm. I'll be quiet. Uh, but it, it, was, it was a look at... Um, uh, um, sort of white America, but the the tremendous disparity that has been a result of the 1960s, more people going to college, da, da, da. but basically the argument is that there are these four centers in America, New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and San Francisco, Silicon Valley, um, where you have these major power brokers where they, these the, this group of people have huge influence. And again, you look at Fairfax County, Loudoun County, in mm-hmm. Virginia right mm-hmm. now, very much in the news right now. These are the people who who many ways through the administrative state, through Hollywood, through uh, through through big tech. In many ways, they kind of control our lives. What David Brooks calls it is the epistemic economy, the, yeah. the economy of knowing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. because if you look at mm. the college graduates, kind of where yeah. they all went, you know. And so there, there's an urban-rural thing there too. But um, so I, I think that's a lot of what's going on, and people didn't know how to voice their frustration. They knew it intuitively. They didn't read a book that said, oh, really influential people are in these key centers of the world and I'm left out. Right. They just knew it intuitively. They knew it in their gut. And uh, the question is whether or not Donald Trump is, I think, uh, means what he says or did he just tap into a frustration? Like, did he just use their anger to and win? And ride yeah. that way. Right. Yeah. Or, or does he actually sympathize with these people? Does he actually want to empower them by, say, bringing manufacturing back to the Midwest, it's, yeah. for example? So I, I think I think unquestionably what you're talking about is true. I mean, but I think the, 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 the corollary I would add there is the internet, right? Mm-hmm. It's the internet that has allowed these folks who... Uh, might have been dispossessed and and aggrieved in private uh, 
mm-hmm. to become aggrieved in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's that's true about everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter what the grievance is or mm-hmm. what the political organization around a grievance is. All of those grievance-based organizing groups have become way more yeah. powerful because of the way the internet has given them the capacity to organize sure. and to sort of feed off each other, right? Because mm-hmm. being aggrieved in private is one thing, but if you find someone else who shares your grievance... That's right. Man. Now you have a denomination. Right, exactly. Congratulations. <laughs> You're ready for a reformation. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> um, I went yeah. to an art installation the other day with a friend, and when we a got what? there, an art installation. What's that? It's, that a, it's, a, bobo, it's a bobo thing. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying yeah. to segue, yeah. Okay. And when we got there, they asked us uh, if we <laughs> – I'm not joking. They said, are you VIP or basic? <laughs> I was what? like, you couldn't think of another word. <laughs> Dude, I'm not basic. I'm based. <laughs> based? <laughs> What does that even mean? Doesn't based mean something? You need to read the internet more. (laughs) Dude, based means, uh, I don't know, but I am it. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm not basic. But I guess no one that's basic thinks they're basic. Oh, maybe I'm basic. Based is like the conservative version of woke, I think. Oh, it's a meme meme thing. There's like, it is a form of of internet enlightenment. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I don't even know if it's true about me. Anyway, well, was the, was the art was the art good? Was it there was, any? Was it was there okay. Any? Uh, it might have been better if I was a VIP. Yeah. Might, it would have been a whole different experience. I can't believe they said that though. Uh, any hundred whole, whole different there. art. There would have been a whole different That's art. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the I real didn't art. see it because my eyes were you know yeah. grayed over by my basicness. Anyway. Hey, hey, anybody seen the Hunter Biden artwork? By the way, has anyone like seen the artwork no. that he's selling? It's Who's selling artwork? Hunter, Hunter Biden. Biden, and it's like escalated in price. Like by an oh. astronomical. Oh, I mean, like, he's. I mean, a well, they're like paint, like ha- paintings. It's paint by number. They're, no, I'm kidding. They're actual. They they look extremely sophisticated. You've seen it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can see pictures. Are they like like Im- are they like like Pollock's? Are they like imagistic paintings? They're imagistic. Yeah. So he's actually painting things that are recognizable yes. as things. <laughs> they're like extremely complex. Because I was like, oh, well, you it's- have to ask art yeah. these days. Okay. You know? I mean, I mean, to be cynical, some people have said that this is a massive money laundering campaign. What? Yes. And That's as it turns out, talk. art is a fantastic way to launder money. Oh, it's because great. Because it's a totally subjective value of things. Yeah. Um, so when Hunter Biden is selling artwork <clears throat> for half a million dollars or much more, um, it kind of makes raises people's eyebrows. Like, gosh, that seems kind of strange. Like, who is this guy, and why does this art? I mean. On the other hand, you can be like, like rugs to me. Sorry. No, it does actually look like. like I mean, it's it's arty. <coughs> I don't but think I, I would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. But for I, it. you're basic too. I, I, I assumed it would be like a white canvas with like a red dot on it or something. Yeah, like that. you know, that's, like, that's what it, I. Because he has no training. Right. But uh, as it turns out, like it's, I'm like, do you think he did that, or do you think he has like art students like doing that, and he it's he's putting his information. Well, you know, that's how most like modern artists work. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. Like yeah. they have schools that. Well, no, they you just know. have apprentices. Yeah, yeah so like yeah. if you're like a famous modern artist, especially if you do non-imagistic art, typically the way that works is you have a team yeah. mm-hmm. and you're working on 10 or 12 pieces at a time. And, you know, I mean, it's like most professional speech givers don't write their own speeches either, yeah. you know. I mean, well, everything I do is original. So if you yeah. like what you hear here, you should subscribe and yeah. everything, send us money. Everything I do is plagiarized. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't have a team, so I just... Steal. I just steal. Yeah. You actually, heard it here first. You, you know, actually, you know what we should talk about? It's not on our list. Sorry. But the, the plagiarism, it's old the now. Baptist. But the plagiarism scandal yeah. of the new SBC president. Did you hear about that? I've not. Well, okay. So long, very quickly. <laughs> oh, we are going off the rails su- today. Su- super quickly. So the, the new president of the SBC, <clears throat> who a lot of people, a lot of conservatives didn't really like that he, he that he was elected, but he was. And 
all of a sudden people kind of turned up the fact that he gave a sermon that was remarkably like the former SBC president. Like, oh. real like not only word for word, but like um, they would talk about experiences in the first person that they obviously didn't have. <laughs> Right. That's really so bad. So it would be like it would be like you know I remember when my kids were little and we went on a trip and they yeah. skinned their knee this is or totally something. Totally someone it's like, else's so it's like thing. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it 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 does. So I don't think he actually plagiarized. My thing is I don't think I think they plagiarized from, from the same, same source, source yeah. right? Which is like a sermon writing. Yeah. Whatever. So or, so for those of you who aren't pastors, oh, this is there, so there are these know. there are these uh, email things that you can subscribe to, and they they literally send you sermons every week. So if you're in a liturgical tradition like we are, you can actually get on one where it's like, here are the, the readings and the common lectionary for this week. Here's a sermon for this week. And at least in our denomination, there is at least once or twice a year somebody who gets in trouble with the diocese for plagiarizing mm-hmm. from some hmm. one of these email. I don't know. Is yeah. that a thing for y'all too? I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. That's. I mean, probably. It's like a thing yeah. that, are, that at least the Episcopal Diocese of Texas is like on the lookout for. Yeah. Where like when we gather, they're like, hey, don't wow, plagiarize your sermons. Yeah. That's well, good. You I jerks. Mean, I mean, there's something deeply unethical about that. <laughs> to what? stand in well, front well, of But also spiritually and, worrying. Like, yeah. yeah. Like I get you're busy. Writing a sermon can be really like the last <laughs> thing that you have the resources to do at the end of a long week. Yeah. But like to just literally – plagiarize someone else's sermon. And to to put someone else's experience in your own words is... Mm -hmm. is, Anyway, so I think that whole interest... You know, we we lost a whole month of Around the Blackboard, so we're making it for lost. That's right. But give us... But if either of you is ever out sick or something and you need someone to preach at your church, I now know that I can do that. I'll just go find the... Yeah. And as long as as you said, I'm just reading this. I know Rick Warren. I think Rick Warren owns sermons.com. Yeah, I'm sure. And I think it's that same service. I'm sure it does. Um... But I'm like, God, have some integrity, people. I know. Jeez. Like, if you have to give a bad sermon, give a bad sermon, but at least it's yours. You at know? least dig out one of your old ones. Yeah, and, exactly. Your old ones. Yeah. That would be hilarious. Just read it. seemed like it. you didn't get it the first time, so I thought I'd just, you know, re-up. Yeah. All right. Take well, can us we, away Can we talk about David Brooks? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> David Brooks, I know, is, uh, is can be sort of a lightning rod uh, in our very polarized culture. Uh, he was hired by the New York Times in the 1980s. Uh, to be the sort of resident conservative at at the NYT. Uh, And he was hired to that position because he was uh, William F. Buckley's uh, sort of mentee. William Mm -hmm. William F. Buckley, who, of course, is the father of 20th century conservatism, Mm -hmm. um, uh, really sort of brought David Brooks along and informed him. Uh, And so he went on to become, I think, a pretty well-known columnist at the New York Times, he wrote a uh, really a groundbreaking book that in some ways predicted some, some of the, the, the ways that our class structure in the, United, in the United States would change radically in the 21st century called uh, Bobos in Paradise. And Bobos stands for Bohemian Bourgeois. Bohemian Bourgeois. So it's a book about what he calls the creative class, meaning the, the college-educated uh, class of professionals <laughs> who are not doing manual labor. Uh, we're talking about lawyers, doctors, financiers, 
you know, uh, the, the folks who, who have really ridden the wave of the information age mm-hmm. economy into a position of incredible power. So he wrote that book in the, I think in the 90s. Yeah. I think it's like an 99. old book. So recently in The Atlantic, uh, he published uh, in The Atlantic, it's actually in the magazine, but you can find it online. He published uh, sort of an update to Bobo's in Paradise that looks at how the changing of America's class structure uh, around the uh around the um the rise of the creative class is has generated a lot of the political instability that we're dealing with now so i I thought just briefly i would outline sort of his vision for how class structure is is functions in america and then i we could just sort of chat about that does that sound good everyone amenable to that yeah okay so um so it's helpful because it gives you the whole picture so what brooks says is that on the left uh, you have you have the the most powerful people uh, in the class hierarchy on the left are what he calls the blue oligarchy, and the blue oligarchy are the like people that run corporations, the folks who are like running movie studios, mm-hmm. like people who are making you know millions and millions of dollars a year and have reached their boomers who have reached the apex of their career uh, of their career trajectory and they were like the bobos of the 90s mm. so they were like young creatives in the 90s and they've now kind of reached that apex they're all constitu- constituted in a couple of urban metros around the world Washington DC Los Angeles New York you got the blue oligarchy so then you have what he calls the creative class the creative class are the children of the blue oligarchs mm. Mm. so people okay. who are you know recent college graduates um, all the way, th- basically millennials, folks in our, in our generation uh, who are sort of climbing their way up that, uh, that hierarchy, uh, but are, are, are have a, a, kind of a, some distance from the oligarchs because there's this loathing, right? In the creative class, for instance, there's a rejection of like Clinton-Obama neoliberalism mm-hmm. as being sort of like not, uh, not far not enough, far enough yeah. right? So there's this like some tension there. The Bernie bros. Yeah, Bernie Bros would be examples yeah. of like a very creative class okay. thing. And then finally, you have what he calls the caring class. Karen and or caring? Caring, C-A-R-I-N-G. Okay. Oh, yeah, These are folks who are like uh, in good, good paying paralegals, nurses, like good paying jobs. Um, and they tend to be pretty apolitical, hmm. uh, but are maybe the last bastion of what we, what we might call sort of apolitical centrist mm-hmm. yeah. core of America. So then on the right, you have at the top of the hierarchy what he calls the GOP donor class. This is the fraction of the one percenters that vote red, in other words. And they're the ones that basically underwrite all of the political activity on the right. Then you have what he calls the local elite, who are like families in Kansas and in Texas who own land and mm-hmm. have been in their place for years. The gentry. And, right. G- decades. Yeah. Uh, they, they're pretty wealthy, but not astronomically wealthy, mm-hmm. but really powerful in their local areas. Then you have the what he calls the proletarian aristocracy. Hmm. And these are like plumbers who make six figures. Yeah. Right. These are the folks who like bought the boats and the Trump boat regattas, uh-huh. you know. Um, and then you have the rural working class at the bottom of that hierarchy. So according to David Brooks, that's how our mm. class structure lines up. What do you guys think? I think it's fascinating. I don't know that I have any more thoughts beyond that. Uh, I guess I'm the second to last on the red side, yeah? I'm, I don't get yes. paid as much as the paralegal. What was the second, not the rural, what was the... Like, the caring, the, the proletarian aristocracy, or do you mean the caring... But I don't caring, make six figures, so... The caring class. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm in ministry and I'm conservative, so, you know, yeah. I don't know exactly what that makes me, but. 
No, that 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 sounds about right. I I think that um, I think that say your average say, let's just say your average Trump voter, for example, hates people at on both sides at the top. To be honest, yeah. really, I oh, think yeah. so. so that's interesting. So because I've always like looking at. I mean, I try to stay as far away from politics as I can in terms of <laughs> emotionally, but looking at it sort of uh, in a clinical horse race kind of way, it seems like there's a lot of synergy between the kind of libertarian focus of the GOP donor class. Oh, but maybe not. I guess what you're saying is actually most Trump voters have a pretty progressive. Uh, Trump, Trump brought, you know, economic nationalism right. yeah. to the fore. G- the GOP is not interested in that. Yeah. They're, they're not. They're, they're as interested in, you know, NAFTA and sending jobs overseas and, and, and sort of, uh, I mean, China is a big part of this, right? Mm. You know, basically, you know, our theory on kind of what we do with China. Like, yeah. do we try to become their friends? Do we continue to trade with them? Or do we like you know embargo the crap out of them or yeah. not or tariff really, um, you know? Um, so, uh, for, just as an example, but populism, you know, uh, the, the 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 Republican Party's changing before our eyes. We're we're witnessing Huge. we're witnessing a kind of Roosevelt esque yeah. Roosevelt esque realignment, big time realignment, um, and Democrats should be very scared because I think there are a lot of folks. Um, not to make it political. I mean, for all, I could say this as a Democrat, right? I mean, I, Chuck Todd said it yesterday, actually, hmm. um, basically looking at Biden's poll numbers and how low they are. Um, but, you know, basically, I think you, you look at the life issue, you, you look at economic, you, you look at America first, uh, you look at the, the overreach of the trans issues. Um, there's a lot of kind of things going. You look at immigration. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's a big uh, one. Ma- major Hispanics are moving to the Republican Party. Um, there are lots of... There, you know, and, and, and I would argue, you know, so each party, let's say, is built on coalitions, right? 100%. Like, okay. Yeah. Each party is built on coalitions. I think on the left, though, those coalitions have a higher degree of possibility or probability that they'll fracture. Because mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, I don't know that the LGBT, you know, group and, say, urban blacks <clears throat> really have much in common. Well, and e- even more, I mean, if you look at the way that Trump pushed on those coalitions, <laughs> you had – Basically, I mean, a ton of what, you, of what they're calling Biden Democrats, meaning centrists mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. who fall into that uh, professional. Like, I know a ton of these. These are like people I went to college with who were like hardcore Republicans in college. Mm-hmm. And after Trump, yeah. we're like, never again. Yeah. Right. But, you know, who knows? Like, that's too big of a coalition. You can't yeah. have hardcore socialists all the way through to centrist, you know, you know, like n- normal capitalist neoliberals yeah. with every identitarian group also, you yeah. can't have a coalition that big. It just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, inevitably like that coalition will fracture. Yeah. I think, um, but the question yeah. I think is going to be whether Republicans are going to be able to make room for some of those other, other groups in their coalition. Yeah. Because it seems like Republicans are real committed to the things that get their base super fired up. Yeah. And to build a coalition, you kind of have to be able to tell your most ardent supporters to shut the F. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. did I do that right? Yeah. Shut the F, F word. up. Shut the F word yeah. up. And, you know. I think, I think Virginia will actually be a really interesting test case yeah. for this because yeah. what you've got is a, a I mean, if, if it's true that Biden won it by 10 points, uh, that's a deep blue state. That's a deep mm-hmm. blue state. If, it, if it's even close tomorrow, but certainly if, if Youngkin wins, I think it's a bellwether to basically say there's a lot of, of the, I would say, on the, on the blue side, 
the paralegal type yeah. that have kids in school that are yeah. going, these people don't share my values. That's right. Okay, this is beyond whether the corporate tax rate should be 35 or 25%. Yeah. Those days are over. We are not. <laughs> we do not care about that anymore. We care about a six-year-old coming home from school okay. basically hearing one way or another that they're basically evil because they're white. Okay, yeah. because, Or their daughter's being raped and everyone's well, silenced. Yes, it. I mean, yes. You know the... the the archetypal thing that people said I know, would happen. I know, I'm I know. sorry, but people said you don't put boys in girls' bathrooms. Boys can't be trusted. Um, and so, boy, just horrible, horrible event. <laughs> and politically, horrible timing for a guy that McAuliffe, who's a total doofus, uh, can't believe people are excited about him. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, I do think, though, that, that you've got a lot of those people on that that third tier down, I think it was on the blue side. Yeah, the the caring class. <laughs> yeah, who are um, you know, like you said, they're kind of apolitical, and I think they're looking at worldview issues. Now, this yeah. does get into religion. Okay, this does get into how you see the world, what you think society mm-hmm. ought to look like, and the progressive left is pushing. I think they I think they're way overplaying their hand. I think they're pushing way too hard. And they are proposing a different kind of world, like a different kind of society. And I think yeah. people intuitively feel something is different about this. This isn't about big government. Well, so here I think I think my, my issue with what you're saying is that you presuppose it's being driven by people intentionally. What is actually creating our different world is the massive rate of technological change we're experiencing. Yeah. Like, like. So and then you've got different people trying to interpret what to make of that reality. But it would be like trying to say like um, the the wars of religion were caused because the Protestants were pushing too hard. And wars of religion were caused by the printing press. Mm. Mm. Well, I was thinking about what you were talking about with the social media. Well, internet and then social media, and thinking about the apolitical people. If they're the kind of people that are just kind of browsing through the news that happens upon their feed. It, what seems like what your options are now are the super far versions of both yeah. camps. Like, it, I don't see sort of normal Joe Schmo like, hey, taxes should be reasonable and we should value life. But like, you know, like sort of the right. let's not get crazy. There's none of that anymore. It's all like you're deeply socialist or you hate other races. or I mean, whatever the thing is, it's so extreme. I am also yeah. to be apolitical. Well, and that's that's, I think, one of the most fascinating things about politics in our era is that it is literally, I mean, you can look at political science research, moderates do better in elections, general mm. elections. They just do, mm. which makes perfect sense, right? If you're a moderate, that means you're attracting you're approachable. a larger yeah. base of people. Yeah. There's, you're less likely to turn off, you're going to turn off less people right. as a moderate, right? <clears throat> but, but the forces within our political parties have been pushing people more to the extremes. Mm-hmm. So I think to your point, the question is, which of these two coalitions is going to figure out how to be more pragmatic and mm-hmm. less ideologically faithful? Yeah. Which In other words, to be, to, be, to, to be less concerned about what they think is right and more concerned about, okay, how do we actually build a coalition that gets yeah. votes on the table? Now, I, I think one of the issues in the last couple of decades is, or last, since Trump, uh, on the whole, is that Democrats think more pragmatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how this whole coalition formed, mm-hmm. right? How did Biden get nominated? <laughs> Nobody on the left was excited about Biden. They <laughs> no, nominated him because they thought 
this guy will be able to get the votes we need in Pennsylvania. Yeah. This guy will be able to get the votes we need in Wisconsin. Yeah. That's the kind of thinking that you have to have as a political party. So the question is, will Democrats sort of lose that and become so obsessed with their actual beliefs about things yeah. that they lose the ability to think politically or will yeah. Republicans gain that ability. So basically it's like, is uh, say a Nancy Pelosi, who's a super hard leftist, but she's pragmatic. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, Nancy Pelosi or her type went out or will AOC went out. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or I mean, and a, you know, yeah. Or one of the, the other identitarian pockets. Yeah. See the difference is I think people think of Trump as uh like you said, you don't want him to run again because he's like so he's so alienating. Mm, okay, on the one hand, but 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 I really think that basically he he kind of is in control of the Republican Party at the moment. Yeah, um, hmm. you know, I mean, he is a king. He one hundred percent is. Yeah, he's a kingmaker. Uh, you know, and you know, people are kind of waiting on him to run, and like, you've got. You know, you've got people. You you have so you mentioned like the GOP donor class. Yeah, they got a lot of money. And they have a lot of power. Um, for the first time, though, there are GOP candidates getting ready to be prime, you know, to run for primaries for Senate races, and they're saying, "Yeah, I will vote against Mitch McConnell." Wow. Okay, here's why that's a big thing. Mitch McConnell holds the purse strings for Senate candidate funds. Yeah. And we're talking millions and millions of millions right. of dollars, which would that all he has to do is say, "Yes, you get millions of dollars right. for your Senate and you're campaign guaranteed in Missouri. You're, you're a guarantee to win." Yeah. And Jeez. and you've got people that are now saying. I will not vote for him for for GOP leader, which means I ain't going to get that money. But see, to so, me, that's but, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. I'm, that's the kind of behavior that's, that's going to sink the Republican Party. Yeah. Because the bottom line is, to be a functional political party, everybody has to say what's more important to me yeah. than what I think is true is what is going to get us playing the game seats. I. Yeah. But see, I think I disagree, and I think time will tell. So I think we'll have to see in the midterms, and I think we'll see what happens in the future because. <clears throat> And there's a whole social media component to this too, right? Like, so Twitter knocked off Trump, and now Trump's trying to have his own social media because he did communicate through yeah. that medium quite a bit. But <laughs> I, I think that where I think that what remains to be seen is whether there really can be a kind of populist uprising that is so significant that it mm. does break the rules of conventional politics in the same way that I think Trump yeah. broke rules of conventional politics. I just I'm not, I don't buy that. I mean, so I think it's possible to have a populist uprising that lights a fire that eventually burns the whole thing to the ground. Yeah. And then you end up with that populist uprising creating some alternative form of yeah. governing. But I just don't think populism is a sustainable kind of organization in a democracy. Yeah. Because at some point in a democracy, you get alienated from what drew you to politics to begin with. Yeah. Because it's a horse trade, right? I mean, dem democratic politics is horse trading. Yeah. Like small oh, D for sure. democratic. Oh, and so yeah, at some yeah. point, you're going to have to say, yeah, I, I, I want this, but I'm going to give it up. Right. Because maybe I kind of want this yeah. other thing. It's, we, it, our system is designed to be that and, way. And populism, whether on the left or the right, is mm -hmm. based upon a, a, a fervent belief that there are specific policy solutions that need to be enacted mm -hmm. for there to be, you know, for things to be okay. Yeah. It just doesn't jibe well with democratic politics. Yeah. With, mm -hmm. a, with a small D. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Want to talk okay. about witches? Let's talk about witches. Yeah, let's okay. change gears. Uh, well, because it, because know, the witches are the sons and daughters of Bobos. Well, they that's are. actually that's, true. <laughs> yeah. It's true. They're it the creative true. class. Um, or are they only the daughters? Can you be a male witch? Well, this person's non-binary. Is it a warlock? Let's get there. Let's get there. Right. Yeah. Non-binary. So uh, the next article we're looking at is called "From Spellcasting to Podcasting: Inside the Life of a Teenage Witch," <laughs> but not like Sabrina. Not like you know, fun and I don't know, jaunty. Uh, 
the article, I'll read just a few lines of it. It says, um, this woman, or I'm so sorry, this non-binary person, Bennett, uh, identifies as non-binary and uses they, them pronouns, starts by meditating and selecting a tarot card from a deck on a small wooden table. They call it their working area. Other items laid out on it include a labradorite crystal for mind clearing and enhanced intuition and a wand made of selenite. What kind of crystal? For labradorite. Why are you I just torturing wanted to see, me? Yeah, I just wanted to see if you could say it twice. Oh, goodness. For, you know, the other day in the podcast, I stumbled over exegetical, and it's a theology podcast. Oh, it's embarrassing. Anyway, there's also a slightly singed bundle of juniper. That's where we get gin from. This whole article made me hungry, uh, which <laughs> Bennett burns to... Cl- seriously, get the Hungry end. for gin? What? Well, for thirsty gin? for gin, but at the oh, end, okay. they have this jar of like garlic and a bay leaf and some mm. business they're giving to the moon goddess. And I was mm-hmm. like, man, that would make a good spread on some toast. What? Anyway. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, they're connecting to various energies, gods and goddesses, and more deeply to themselves. So this is about this person that practices witchcraft in uh, a young, and so then it goes on to talk about this trend uh, that the hashtag, uh, hashtag witch talk, uh, that's cute, <laughs> on the youth-oriented site TikTok, that's funny <laughs> that they have to say what that is, has 19.4 billion views. Uh, they're looking for personalized practice that taps into their own spiritual power and identity and feels authentic. And it goes on to talk about kind of what they're doing. But, I mean, I think a few things about this are interesting. One, um, that that they're moving away from – there's another section that talks about um, that 54% of these teens, so 14 to 18, they say that living a religious life is important to them. Hey, good news, Patrick. No, nope, mm, It's what? not the kind of religion we want. What? Bring on the bay leaves and garlic, man. Yeah, yeah. sadly. So social media, commercial data, and expert interviews show a deep interest and openness to the supernatural, varied forms of consciousness, and a pa- blah, blah, blah. The last part of the sentence says, it's just that the places they look for awe and higher truths aren't necessarily institutions or scriptures, but increasingly in increasingly in nature and in themselves. And this is, oh, I think this is WAPO. Uh, this is not like a religious news site, but I think there's two interesting things about this. One, this idea that they're, they're not looking to any sort of like established religion. They're picking some pagan stuff, some Islamic stuff, even some Christian stuff with like angels and demons, but none of the sort of core tenets of Christianity. But then it goes into later, we don't have this part printed, so I can't quote it, but it talks about part of why this has happened is that their parents are part of, uh, I don't know, maybe somewhere between Boomer and, uh, let's just call them Boomers for now, that have been so disenchanted with institutionalized religion that they kind of were not, they're nons, Mm -hmm. you know, such that then people grow up without sort of that base idea of whether I like it or not, this is kind of the generic understanding of what's true out there. It made me think about the fact that, I don't know where you guys are on this, what you think, but as a parent, I've wondered, like, should I force my kids to go to church? Because I think Christianity is true, and I want them to at least just hear that. Um, I've erred on the side of, yes, forcing them to go to church, but every once in a while, letting them off. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I don't know. I think the whole thing is interesting. I also think it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from some of the Christian mysticism that we see. And I'm talking about the, like, edges of Christian mysticism, not just, like, contemplative prayer, Mm -hmm. but... Um, some of this like tapping into the inner light you have within that we all have the divine God or goddess within us. And that's what this is. And it's, that's a really lovely idea. I would love to think I had divinity within me. I've searched and I have not found any. I don't know about you guys. Um, no, the only thing coming out of my heart is like evil and slander. And uh, all that's kinds so of true. I'm friends stuff. with this guy. And yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. I mean, no. it's what Jesus predicted, you know, so. 
So that's why we need a public-private divide. In hey. yeah. So, so let, if you if you take your kids to church a hundred percent of the Sundays, what are the what are the odds that they'll end up in church? It's not a hundred percent. No. Right. There's going to be some fall off. I don't know, fifty percent, seventy-five percent, something like that. And my bell is ringing, so I'm going to go pick it. Yeah. Let me just make this point. Not pick it. Let me go answer the door. <laughs> um, quickly, though, um, what you have when church attendance decreases generationally at the end of the day, you have witches. Right. Thank it's you like, for that. Is that it's your, is that your, that, like, is that your mic drop? <laughs> That's his mic drop. And he's not wrong. Go, go well, yeah. so pick here's, your bell. So, yeah. so there's this, uh, um, when I was in seminary, I had to read this guy uh, about uh, Christian formation named John Westerhoff. And one of the things that Westerhoff talked about is what he calls the hidden curriculum of the household. And my, my stance on this is that it is possible to take your child to church every week, to go to church yourself every week, mm-hmm but have the hidden curriculum of your household mm-hmm. be materialism. Yeah. Or have the hidden curriculum of your household Science be a million. Or yeah. like that you're a Texas football fan, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what your what that is, but there there it is I think the issue in American Christendom has been that you've got a lot of people for generations who have been coming to church, but the hidden curriculum of their household has yeah. been some other uh, some other religion entirely. Yeah. And so the result of that is that you have kids who grow up in church every week, and yet also feeling very contemptuous about that because they experience it as like a superficial dressing mm-hmm. on what really mattered in their household. Well, I feel like half of the time that I'm talking to somebody that has, as an adult, come to faith, they start by saying the sentence, I grew up in a Christian home, we went to the church all the time, and I never heard the gospel. Or I never understood right. the gospel. Or, I never understood what it meant to follow Christ. It's kind of what you're talking about. So I don't think church yeah. is the answer alone or like just you know dragging your kids to church. But what I did think is interesting is, um, so we're recording this at the very beginning of November. It'll come out uh, at the beginning of November. And in December, our live event is going to be talking about heresies. And one of the heresies we're going to talk about is the hard to pronounce one. So tell us what it is, Patrick, the M one. with the uh, ma- Manichaeism. Manichaeism. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of this idea, right? That you have this divine or internal light that you have right. to sort of feed and take care of and yeah i mean one of the things that we'll i think we talk about and we'll talk about at that uh at that live event is that heresies just come back and back and back right there's nothing Mm -hmm. new under the sun and manichaeism was uh the exact sort of thing that you see today in all of these like diet and workout cults Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. uh but mixed with some sort of eastern religion where there's some luminescence or light that can be fed or strengthened based on some set of practices, whether exercise or diet related. Uh, and then you become sort of like one of the enlightened people who is a keeper of this special light based on your, you know, your practices. And then and, you're inching into Gnosticism. They all right. connect. Yeah, they all, they all do connect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, what you're describing is basically our, our culture's slow roll into back into paganism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, was, if you think about it, pretty much inevitable. I mean, yeah. once once Christendom, once the the kind of uh, intellectual hegemony of the church declined, and the ability of Christian thought to sort of hold public discourse captive went away, eventually paganism was going to come back. Pagan, yeah. Paganism is the natural, you know, I, I believe, making a theological statement, it is the natural form of religion hmm. to human mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christianity, building on like Neoplatonism and all the other uh, things that that worked their way into the creation of you know kind of p- post patristic Christianity was a 
a lifting up of that bar. And what's happening is that bar is slowly lowering back to where people are like worshiping trees and and grass. Well, it's so funny because if you're in some sort of Bible study and you're talking about the Old Testament and all the pagan rituals and the pagan gods and goddesses and don't do these pagan things, I think you sit around in a living room and you think, that's so different. Like, I would never. And so then you think, well, what are my modern idols? Sex and power and money or whatever, which that's true. But this stuff is still there. It mm-hmm. says later in the, I had to pull it up on my phone. It says later in the article that uh, 44% of 18 to 24 year olds said that astrology is very scientific. Like, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I think they were um, confused with astronomy, maybe. They were not Hopefully. confused. Well, they are confused, but they knew what they were answering. <laughs> anyway. Um, I laugh at that, but you know, like the entire, I mean, there was a, there was a Indian a matchmaker show or something on Netflix. Yes, Indian and, matchmaker. I watched yeah, every episode. Yeah. And there was a Houston connection to that. Uh-huh. So anyway, but. Oh, they but, had a face reader in that. So they, they're high into They're big into astrology. Yeah. So you definitely have to like run the charts of both people. But then they also had a, a person that would just look at someone's picture on a phone, look at their face and be like, oh, I can tell wow. that they're blah, 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 wow. which is, I mean, yeah, hilarious. Talk about judging a book by its cover. But anyway. I, I remember someone said once that um, conspiracy theories, and I'll tie this in, Conspiracy theories does the same thing in your mind that something like shoplifting does. The the adrenaline rush, the thrill. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a reason people chase conspiracy theories. It's exciting. Yeah. It's like secret right. knowledge. It's hidden knowledge. Um, and this strikes me as very much the same thing. Yeah. I, the, what, what what is the appeal of this? Everyone know. Everyone wants to know. It's on the other side of the hill. Right. right? Um, you could say the grass is always greener or whatever. But um, I think there will always be this allure of spiritualism. Um, you know, even getting involved in, in dangerous things, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so sure, sure, she has a lot of TikTok followers. Well, it's, it's not to be I, I want to provide an interesting corollary to this. I think we, we briefly talked about this at, at, a, at a lunch once, but we are in the Episcopal Church experiencing a huge influx of people seeking exorcisms now. Mm. I mean, this used to be, I mean, 50 years ago, you know, if you had gone to the Bishop of Texas and said, hey, we need an exorcism, he would have looked at you like you were stark raving mad because that was not mm-hmm. a thing that mm-hmm. people were needing, right, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, um, deliverance ministry is one of the things that people are – if you want to talk about what unchurched people are coming to us and asking for, yeah. they're either asking for weddings, they're asking for a baptism, or an exorcism. Mm. And you should probably do it in the reverse order. Though, actually, you know, the Roman Catholics made exorcism part of baptism. Right. I do so know yeah. that. Yeah. I just meant get the demons out before you get right, married. Right, before you get married. Don't, yeah. don't bring the demons into the marriage. No, you'll, you'll manufacture. Really after that. You'll manufacture enough of your own. You don't, that's right. You don't yeah. need help. Um, so I think that, that ties. I mean, the, the church will basically have to revert to what it means to minister in a pagan context, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, watch, watch out for the meat you eat. It might have been sacrificed to an idol. I'll say that in the last— Bring it back. Few years. Good old I mean, Pauline I, debates. Yeah, I haven't been asked to do any exorcisms, but I have been asked to do house blessings where there seem to be some really odd things going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, dream, like really bad dreams, mm-hmm. like over and over and over and over and over. Yep. Sort of like not one bad dream, but like something that was seemed continual and and other things too. So I, I do think there's a connection between this kind of spiritual warfare we're talking about and. This idea that what the beginning of the article talks about, that they're looking inside themselves for this divine that they have within, and that part of the problem with moving away from institutional institutionalized religions is that there's now not this idea that truth and 
goodness and hope and all of the things you want, happiness, is found without. It's found outside of you. So you have to go seek it. Yeah. So truth used to be something that you need to go and discover and find and it's knowable. Uh, but now it's like, no, 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 the truth is within me. And I think it's, that's a sexy idea, but it's dangerous. Um, and I mean, as somebody that has two teenage kids, I, yeah, it's, it's really scary. I actually think, though, there, there is some hope in this in that, you know, Patrick and I are both sort of – we're part of the institution, right? I mean, like, we're not attractive people to these people. They're looking for something <laughs> no, exciting. very and, attractive. Don't say that. Um, but, but I do think there's a kind of opportunity, if you will. Huge. In yeah. the sense that if we actually preach real Christianity, not the hey. bull crap that yeah. was preached for 50 years in, in the lame institutional era of the church in America, like, there are people who are like – where has this been? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to I had to watch a freaking witch on TikTok to hear about this crap, <laughs> yeah. you know. Speaking of, I'll be teaching about demons on Sunday morning. So Ooh. For many, many weeks. <laughs> so bring your sage and uh anyway. <laughs> But yeah, no, I I mean I, I yeah. That's that's I, I think that's the that's that's exactly it. I mean, um, the gospel the the advantage to a new pagan world is that we know how well the gospel mm. preaches mm-hmm. in that world. Let me try to tie this Love in that. with a story real fast. Okay. Got a call about a wedding. You said weddings. People come for a wedding. Yep. Just like the conversation you had. Went to church when I was a kid. Don't go now. Uh, without giving anything away, uh, this particular person had been with their significant other for 10 years, been engaged for two years, had an eight-year-old son. Oh, wow. You know, not been in church any of that time. Right. So now, but now looking for a church wedding. Now, it would have been so easy for me to say, all right, this is what we charge for non-member weddings. I can do it. This is what I charge to do it. Right. I'll do your premarital counseling. We'll get you all done. You'll have beautiful pictures. I could have done that like that. Okay. I said, hmm, your eight-year-old's way behind. Way behind. They are being taught religion by everyone. But you. But you. Yeah. And you've got a lot of catching up to do. And if you want to do that, come to church. Meet me. I'll show you around. We'll book the wedding. I will pour myself into you. If you need, if you want to have coffee, if you want to have lunch, you want to have dinner. Uh, I made a video series. You can watch that. Then we can talk about it. Any, any, any whatever you mm-hmm. need, I'll do it. But I'm not going to do a Christian wedding if you're not going to have a Christian marriage and family. Right. And you better get on. You better get on top of this eight-year-old situation. Right. Because uh, as, as I mentioned, for example, as a possible topic was Squid Game, which is the most mm-hmm. watched Netflix show ever. Um, oh, even more than Tiger Baby King, whatever it was. Yeah, be, well, it, it, <laughs> I don't Tiger it, Baby it's, King. It's, it's international. Sure. It's in, I think it has more international appeal than Tiger mm-hmm. King. Um, it's Korean or something. Yeah, yeah. but okay. um, but you know, I'm hearing of like eight and nine year olds who are like watching it. Like people you know? die horrifically in that. Oh, yeah? it's super I haven't violent. Watched it. Super violent and sexual. So oh, it's geez. totally inappropriate. I mean, it's inappropriate for me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it's totally inappropriate for ten year olds. Yeah. And so, um, but they they are. And so yeah. that's my point is, if you're not corralling your eight-year-old and teaching them the faith, you're, you're behind the curve. Yeah, and but so, Evan will help yeah. you if you come to him. And he has a video series. I Actually, will. the video series is awesome. I will. And so why, don't, why aren't people knocking on our door, Patrick? Because they think they're going to hear the old, you know, institutional Same canards from yeah, 50 yeah. years ago. And, yeah. you know, some things to be said for institutions, you know. But, no, I mean, and, yeah. and I mean, I was thinking about that in regards to what Sarah was saying earlier. Uh, institutions really are about safe swimming. You know, I mean, and in, uh, even, you know, I always have to emphasize Christianity is not. What do you mean a, by that phrase, safe swimming? What, what I mean is that orthodoxy exists to stop you from traveling yeah. in good faith down some pretty destructive theological rabbit holes. What the institution does is it connects you to other people and holds you accountable to a tradition 
literally to keep you safe. Yeah. Um, Th there's a way in which the institution mm. needs to retain its radical roots. Sure. Which, which actually mm. radical means rootedness. So, right. Um, it's continuity. And, and that's what we screwed up. You know, we've, right. we've taken advantage of the institution. We've become totally boring. And people are kind of right in many ways to reject us. But um, so basically fire and brimstone is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no. Not really. But I think that like actually Sunday, talking about brimstone. the reality of spirituality, like the, the what right. spirituality like actually is. Right. Yeah. About yeah, Christianity I mean, as as a a, a mode of 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 a mode is the wrong word as a as a spiritual existence. Right, right, right. Mm. Okay, what's next? You you said you're going to tie yes. that into cohabitating people living say, in sin. Oh, yeah, because well, they I just did, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Story. Yeah, and well, everyone knows who you were talking about. Yeah, no, no, we don't. We don't. Um, so because <clears throat> they th were living is, in sin for ten years. I'm saying living in sin because that's the. Yeah, phrase that gets made fun of. Yeah. So this is an article about cohabitating. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's in the American Thinker, which is a conservative website, but a pretty big following. But basically, they're using the, uh, they're using the Gabby Patino story, mm -hmm. Petito rather, uh, story to kind of say, maybe we need to rethink this whole cohabitation thing, and um, I, I, I think that's maybe using, uh, th there is a danger in using that example because it kind of like blames Gabby for, you know, for her death. However. Um, there's something important to be said. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs to get yeah. us off the off the ground here. In our <coughs> excuse me, uh, in our culture where live your own truth is the worldview of seemingly ever increasing number of Americans, we talked about this the whole show. Uh, women and children in the U.S. are especially in danger. This is because, as pop culture philosopher Cameron Diaz put it in 2013, on marriage and sex, tens of millions of Americans have decided it's best to make our own rules. Quote unquote. As Americans have shunned marriage at a record pace, cohabitation among the U.S. couples has exploded. In 2019, Pew Research reported that in the U.S., people among people age 18 to 44, a significantly larger share have cohabited at some point than been married. That's 59% to 50. Feminism and family expert Susan Vanker notes that cohabitation or shacking up has skyrocketed in the U.S. Da 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 da. Um, and then this story is about Gabby Petito. Of course, she was on a road trip uh, with her boyfriend in a converted camper, uh, and she ended up— That's the real problem. They were camping. Just say <laughs> no to camping. Forget cohabitation. I'm kidding. Continue. Well, she had to. She was going to be a YouTuber, you know, uh, doing this thing. But I, I will say this. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I do think—and by the way, there's a researcher in here named Sarah McClanahan. So I, I noticed wanna, that. I was like, did wanna, you just, just pick wanna, this because it's your kin? I just want to point that out. Um <laughs> But no, no um, nepotism, no nepotism. So let me, let me, let me uh, just jump down here. Uh, in 2017, research professors reported that uh, asymmetrical commitment where one member of a couple is significantly less committed to the future of being a couple uh, is more likely to exist in cohabiting than dating relationships uh, and among marrieds to be more likely to exist when couples live it together prior to engagement or marriage. In other words, you know, you, you have asymmetry if you live together more often mm -hmm. before you get married. So um, so basically, maybe that whole never been kissed thing was right all along. Oh, gosh. Well, what I thought was interesting is I thought this was going to be an article about the sort of immorality mm -hmm. of cohabitation or just that it doesn't work. Like the, the, there's staggering numbers of people that live together before marriage, divorcing much more than people that don't. But it was really about like safety. Well, yeah. safety or infidelity. Yeah. So um, the, well, the numbers are so, well, yeah. yeah. Would you just say violence to your heart? No, guarding your heart. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's much more likely for domestic violence and then infidelity when there's cohabitation. I thought that was a fascinating statistic. So like 
even if you don't think there's anything morally wrong with this, just for your own safety, just put a ring on it. Yeah. Or demand that someone put a ring on it, you know? I guess I, I wonder about the correlation causation thing yeah. here. People who do not. So I will say, you know, the Episcopal Church, we are like on the bleeding edge of all of our people are 100% secular and also going to church. So all of our people are somehow living this weird thing mm. where they're like 100% sec secular, but going to church, which means in my 14 years of being a priest, I've probably done 100 weddings. I've not done one where the couple was not cohabitating. Wow. wow. That's everybody. Yeah. Um, and so huh. what I think is that if you find a couple that is not cohabitating, you're also going to find a couple that is living out uh, a yeah. very countercultural religious life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're also probably going to have a ton of other community resources at play. True. So like, you know, one of the things that I found with our couples is that what, what ends up making their marriages difficult is the isolation. Mm. In other words, um, they, they don't, uh, if you're 100% secular, the likelihood is that you're not fully belonging to any community mm -hmm. in a way that can like take some of the weight off of your marriage. I mean, there's all, so I guess all I'm trying to say is some of these stats I believe, but I think it, it, there are that the cohabitation is a function of a, of a larger like way of living mm -hmm. that just changes what marriage means, yeah. right? I mean, also, if you're likely to cohabitate, that means you're probably more secular. It also means that you're okay with divorce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like literally just okay with it is mm -hmm. in like no fault. Divorce means no fault, mm -hmm. whatever. And yeah. I say this nice knowing you. as a divorced human. So mm -hmm. I'm naming that. Yeah. Um, but if, if that's, if you're going into a marriage, like, yeah, we'll try this. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, we'll just not do it anymore. Yeah. As opposed to if you are like from a religious community where like you're not cohabitating, but you also believe that when you get married, that real. is like an eternal contract that cannot be broken. Covenant. Yeah. Um, then you know your whole approach to what you're doing is going to be like way different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't I, I don't know how that fits. But thing is legitimate. Yeah. And yet it's still I mean the result is the same. True. So yeah. My concern is you know I have a daughter and I can say this as a man men I I, I don't trust many men you know that's what scares me as about as a woman I can say the same thing that's what that's what scares me about kind of a culture of cohabitation mm -hmm. is that I think. Uh, there can be many, many very sneaky, manipulative men um, that uh, that when cohabitation is so normalized, like it's an opportunity for dangerous people, okay, who would normally have a social barrier against cohabitation to basically get someone in their home where now it's much harder for them to get out mm -hmm. for financial reasons. That's a whole other thing too. Yeah. You know, rent's yeah. so high. You know, it's a lot yeah. cheaper when you're sharing it with someone. Um, yeah. And, so, that, and that actually is one of the main arguments that I, I hear from. Sure. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I think also it would be an interesting distinction to note how, whether people – so I know people who are cohabitating indefinitely mm -hmm. for whom cohabitation is their goal. Their common law marriage, yeah. I know other people for whom cohabitation is like uh, a trying out the – you know, yeah. a, a test drive. It's like step one. Yeah. Ahead of getting married. Yeah. And those are two very different ways of looking at what you're doing. That's true. Also. I think it's interesting when I watch uh, shows, movies, anything you're watching where there's a scene where the guy, you know, gives a key to the lady and asks her to move in. And it's always romantic. And I've ever since like being a little girl, I remember watching that and thinking that's insulting. Like that's not romantic. If a guy was like, hey, do you want to move in? I'd be like, bro, no, I want like I want you to love me enough 
to want to make the sacrifice, like the commitment, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously not at that same time. Yeah. Because oh, you usually think you're that's s- coming a long time yeah. before. Yeah. But yeah. You think you're so special. You think you're such hot stuff that <laughs> giving me a key is some kind of honor or privilege? Uh-uh. It doesn't work. Yeah. yeah can, a I key never costs about like that. $2. Yeah. We need yeah. a ring with a diamond. No, it's not about the cost. But it is about the level of commitment. And I kind of is about the cost, though. Well, it's about the cost. Of Metaphorically. Some, yeah, some, sure. of us, some of us work construction jobs for an entire summer to buy that thing. Oh, you guys don't know this, but Evan's kind of like a romantic buried deep, <laughs> deep, deep, deep down. Real deep. So deep. Okay, fine. Maybe romantic isn't the right word. So but deep. He has moments. If you get his wife alone anyway, without anyway, him, she'll anyway, sell how much she No, I, I think, <laughs> I, you know, look, okay. I think there is like, uh, hey, what's his name had, you know, Jacob had to work for seven years, you know, and then another seven because he was fooled. So poor guy. Um, oh, but I, but, no, I mean it. Kind of, and it's not about the money, but, but, it, but your, but money is a reflection of your time. It's a, it's a reflection of priorities. Where your treasure is. So, so. but I want to throw another interesting wrinkle in here, which is the purpose, the the way the purpose of marriage has changed in our society. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of writing about this, which is that marriage um, has now become, going back to that class picture we were talking about earlier, a means of perpetuating your uh, your your sort of class level. So mm-hmm. like in the 50s, for instance, um, it was very common that two people of different classes would marry. And that was because the roles of husband and wife were so different, right? So you could conceivably be an executive who might marry someone who is an executive assistant, would yeah. not be the word that you would use in 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that marriage could function because her job was essentially to run the household yeah. while your job was to be out in public, make the money, and then make the whole, you know, that, that made the household work. Yeah. And so the, the, the qualifications for that were different. But now, you know, people are entering, entering into this into marriage in a completely different economic universe where, I mean, I look at, I have, so also in my, in my worldview, I mean, Episcopalians where everyone is 100% secular and, and, and going to church, I don't know of a single parent household. You hmm. don't know? I don't know least. anybody who is in a one-parent household. Who is not? Sorry, sorry. I don't know anybody who's in a okay. one-employed parent household. Oh. Sorry, right, a, right. a single-income okay. household. So they're all double-income. So, yeah. And, I, and, 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 and there's this thing where it's like the idea of not doing that would be, would be financial, would be class suicide. Yeah. Mm. And so marriage has become... And archaic. This, this, well, it's not even that. I mean, mm. sure, they might say, well, it's about, it's about you know, feminism. But if you really push... It's about literally what would we have to sacrifice oh, right. if if we, one of us didn't work. Right, right, right. And the answer is like a, a, a lot yeah. in terms of our, our consumption power, mm-hmm. right? Well, okay. So I just – we have to end, but I want to tie all this together. I, I know Elizabeth Warren, something like 20, year, 20, year, 20 years ago or so, wrote a book called The Two-Income Trap. She mm. used to be on yeah. my side of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and my I, side. I'm, well, I mean, like I mean maybe all of our sides. Side. Yeah. But the, the, the idea, I, I mean, we could be looking, we could look back at this last 60 years in America at some point and be like, huh, we tried that whole tube, tube income thing. It didn't really work very well. It actually, you know, it, it actually bore a lot of things that we don't really like. It could be that the political party that figures out a way to have power for the next 50, 100 years is the one that is able to say, you know what, we're going to, whatever it is, shrink government, lower taxes, whatever, so that you can get back to this, to, to we're, we're going we're gonna to champion the family again. I mean, look at Hungary, okay? Viktor Orban is hated, but I'm pretty sure he's the guy that got in place. I think if you have four children in Hungary, you don't ever pay federal tax again. 
Hmm. You know, they're incentivizing family and children. We, we I don't. I don't think that'd be enough of an incentive. So this is this is, and we, we need to end. Yeah. But again, what's driving this is economics. In other words, like to live, it used to be possible on one income sure. to have a very high degree of consumption power. Mm-hmm. But because of the way our economy has changed, to achieve the same degree of consumption power, mm-hmm. you absolutely have to have two incomes unless someone is That's making exactly million dollars a year. That's exactly what she was saying, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. And then now they say something like the average family that has two incomes, they're spending X number of dollars on childcare because they have right. to. So then yeah, – But mean, my point about this is I don't think that there's a political way to put that back in the bag. Oh, there okay. may not be. There may not be. I mean my, my argument was if, if the economics change once, maybe it can change again. But I think that – Hmm. I think that it could be a winning sort of message if somebody championed the family again instead of just saying, hey, keep working and we want more of your money, which is kind of how it feels sometimes. Um, but um, but we're at anyway. an hour, so we'll have to we're, just we're, dig yeah. in next time. Yeah, We'll just leave it there. Thanks for watching. Uh, again, Patrick Hall, Church of the Epiphany on the southwest side, Episcopal Church. That's us. Sarah Stone, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church. Uh, Hughes, I'm Evan McClanahan, pastor at First Lutheran, uh, Houston TOT. Check out all of that. Thanks for watching us and listening on the podcast. Do give us like good ratings. It helps our visibility. Give us, go to YouTube, give us a thumbs up or whatever you do these days. Send lots of money. I mean, while send, we're asking send for Send some stuff. money your Yeah, send I'm some money our way. Yeah. If you're um, in a dual income household, you have yeah, it to spare. Right. Yeah. So much. You're the yeah. 1%. I'm well, let, you know what? We, we let, we'll ask for money in April when you get your tax money back or whenever it is. <laughs> what is that, May or June? Anyway. Send us those juicy refunds. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, we encourage you, as always, to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.